everybody out there in podcast land, this is Chris, the Public Safety Guru, bringing you another lecture in the Season 2 NREMT slash EMT Lecture Prep Series. Today, we are going to be talking about cardiovascular emergencies. But before we do that, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor or head on over to our webpage, thepublicsafetyguru.com, for up-to-date information about everything EMT. We also have exclusive content for those that become podcast members or join our Patreon channel, which could be found by searching for The EMT Tutor. There you can find exclusive members-only podcasts, study guides, and tests. Alright, on to your learning. As with previous lectures, we're going to identify the knowledge domains, which is the information that you, the EMT student or test prepper, should know at the end of this podcast and your own classroom lessons. So with that, you, the EMT, should be able to discuss the basic anatomy and physiology of the cardiovascular system. You should also be able to discuss the pathophysiology of the cardiovascular system and describe the anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, assessment, and management of the following emergencies. A thromboembolism, angina pectoris, myocardial infarction, hypertensive crisis, and an aortic aneurysm slash dissection. As we move past cardiac emergencies, the EMT student should be able to explain the patient assessment procedures as they relate to cardiovascular problems. Additionally, you should be able to explain the relationship between airway management and the patient with cardiac compromise. Additionally, you should be able to give the indications and contraindications of the medications that are utilized for those patients having cardiac emergencies. And those medications are known as aspirin and nitroglycerin. Now, as we move through this lecture, you, the EMT student, should know and understand cardiac arrest, as well as being able to identify those patients that have implanted pacemakers and defibrillators. Speaking of defibrillators, the EMT should know the differences between a fully automatic and semi-automatic defibrillator, as well as being able to describe the different types of AEDs. As we move into the AED portion of this lecture, you, the EMT student, should know when you apply an AED and when you don't apply an AED, as well as what types of pads to use and the placement of those pads. The EMT student should understand the importance of early defibrillation as being the definitive care for those patients in cardiac arrest. I will say this, that the cardiovascular emergency lecture will make more sense if you, the student, already possess your American Heart Association BLS provider certification. If you don't, you're really missing a lot of information that you would have learned during that eight-hour class. So it is my recommendation that you take your BLS certification as soon as possible, as it will not only help you in this lecture, but during your test taking, as much of the questions, or I say the majority of the questions, deal with AEDs and the management of the cardiac arrest patient. Okay, now let's jump into your lecture. First, cardiovascular disease accounts for about one of every three deaths. EMS can help to reduce deaths by providing the following services. One, encouragement of people to follow a healthy lifestyle. Two, early access to medical care. Three, more CPR training of lay people. Four, increase use of evolving technology in dispatch and cardiac arrest response. Five, public access to defibrillation devices. Six, recognition of the need for ALS. And seven, the use of cardiac specialty centers when they are available. Let's talk a little anatomy and physiology review. The heart's job is to pump blood to supply oxygen-enriched red blood cells to tissues. The heart is divided into a left and right side. Each side has its own upper chamber known as the atrium and also a lower chamber known as the ventricle. 
Now the atriums are designed to receive incoming blood while the lower chambers are designed to pump outgoing blood. Blood leaves each of the four chambers of the heart through one-way valves, which keep the blood moving through the circulatory system in the proper direction. The aorta, the body's main artery, receives blood ejected from the left ventricle and delivers it to all other arteries that supply the body tissues. The heart's electrical system controls the heart rate and coordinates the atria and ventricles. This electrical system automatically allows spontaneous contraction without a stimulus from a nerve source. If the impulses come from the SA node, the sinoatrial node, the other myocardial cells will contract. If no impulse arrives, the other cells are capable of creating their own impulses and stimulating a contraction. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, if you are a healthy adult, we get our first electrical impulse that causes the heart to pump from the sinoatrial node. That is the SA node. And that electrical impulse travels from the top of the heart down to the bottom of the heart. And if this SA node fails, there are backup systems that will take over that will help the heart to pump. The heart won't pump as efficiently, but it still will pump. Let's talk a little bit about the anatomic nervous system, which controls involuntary activities. Now the ANS has two parts. The first part is the sympathetic nervous system, otherwise known as fight or flight. In a fight or flight situation, your heart rate will increase as well as your respiratory rate and depth. Blood vessels will dilate in the muscles. However, your digestive blood vessels will constrict. And this is the system that takes over in times of stress. Now the second part of the ANS system is the parasympathetic nervous system. This is the system that slows the heart and respiratory rate but it also constricts the blood vessels in the muscles while dilating the blood vessels in the digestive system. Can you see it's the opposite of fight or flight? This is where the body always wants to be. It wants to be in that parasympathetic mode where we're just chilling and everything is slow. And because there's blood in the digestive system, it's pretty much the reason why we want to eat and just be happy. So. The parasympathetic nervous system is what the body is always trying to stay within unless there's some type of stress and then our body's fight or flight kicks in. Okay, enough with that. Now let's get back to the actual heart. The myocardium must have a continuous supply of oxygen and nutrients to pump blood. Increased oxygen demand by the myocardium is supplied by dilation, widening of the coronary arteries. Now stroke volume is a term that you're going to use. Stroke volume is the volume of blood ejected with each ventricle contraction. Will you ever use this as an EMT? Probably not, but you at a very minimum got to understand what stroke volume is. Once again, stroke volume is the volume of blood ejected from each ventricle contraction. Coronary arteries are blood vessels that supply blood to heart muscle. Coronary arteries start at the first part of the aorta. Now, the right coronary artery supplies blood to the right atrium and right ventricle, and in most people, the inferior wall of the left ventricle. The left coronary artery supplies blood to the left atrium and left ventricle and divides into two major branches just sh a short distance from the aorta. One more time, the left coronary artery supplies blood to the left atrium and left ventricle and divides into two major branches just a short distance from the aorta. Dependent on the program that you're in, the following material may be tested information. This information deals with the arteries and what body parts the arteries supply blood to. So let's jump into this. The right and left carotid arteries supply blood to the head and brain. The right and left subclavial arteries supply blood to the upper extremities. 
The brachial artery supplies blood to the arms, while the radial and ulna arteries supply blood to the lower arms and hands. The right and left iliac arteries supply blood to the growing pelvis and legs, while the right and left femoral arteries supply blood to the legs as well. Last, the anterior and posterior tibial and peroneal arteries supply blood to the lower legs and feet. And just in case you needed a spelling on that, it's the anterior and posterior tibial, T-I-B-I-A-L, and peroneal, P-E-R-O-N-E-A-L, arteries that supply blood to the lower legs and feet. Let's talk arterioles and capillaries. Now, arterioles and capillaries are smaller vessels. Capillaries connect arterioles to venules. Venules are the smallest branch of the veins. Now let's talk about the vena cavas. The vena cavae return blood to the heart. The superior vena cavae carries blood from the head and the arms back to the right atrium, while the inferior vena cava carries blood from the abdomen, kidneys, and legs back to the right atrium. Now the best way to remember this is superior, above. So the superior vena cava is on top and it's carrying blood from the head and the arms. Well, they're on top of the body. And then the inferior, lower vena cava is bringing the rest of the blood back that's from the abdomen, kidneys, and legs. And that blood is going to the right atrium. So that is the best way to remember the vena cavas. All this talk of blood, well, what is blood? Well, blood consists of several types of cells and fluid. Red blood cells carry oxygen and remove carbon dioxide. White blood cells fight infection. Platelets help blood to clot. And plasma is the fluid that cells float in. This is what blood is made of. It's made up of these four components. Red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and plasma. So now we know the cardiovascular system consists of the pump as well as the fluid, which is blood. But what makes it go round and round? Well, that would be blood pressure. Blood pressure is the force of circulating blood against artery walls. And there are two blood pressures that we need to know about, and that would be the systolic blood pressure and the diastolic blood pressure. The systolic blood pressure is the maximum pressure generated in the arms and legs during the contraction of the left ventricle during the time period known as systole. Once again, the systolic blood pressure is the maximum pressure generated in the arms and legs during the contraction of the left ventricle during the time period known as systole. The diastolic blood pressure is the pressure against the artery walls while the left ventricle relaxes. So what's the best way you can remember this? Well, if you were in my class, I would be holding up my hands right now, making a circle. And then I would say that the heart pumps and that circle would get bigger. Well, that's your systolic blood pressure. Then when the ventricle relaxes, it goes back to that normal circle. Well, this would be your diastolic. And this is happening to your arteries with every heartbeat. That's the best way I can explain it for now until I start the video series. Hopefully, you have a grasp and understanding of blood pressure as we talk about what a pulse is. A pulse is felt when blood passes through an artery during systole. And we have different types of pulses. We have peripheral pulses and central pulses. A peripheral pulse is felt in the extremity, for example, in the radial or posterior tibial. A central pulse is felt near the body's trunk, and you can feel those in the femoral or carotids. So once again, a peripheral pulse, think of your radial pulse or down there at your distal when we're feeling the top of the foot. The central pulse, think of it, central, it's central. Well, that's going to be at the 
body's trunk, and those are the carotid and femoral. There are a few last things that you need to know and understand. The first one is cardiac output, CO. Cardiac output is the volume of blood that passes through the heart in one minute. There is a formula for this, and this is one of the formulas that you need to memorize. That formula is heart rate times stroke volume equals cardiac output. HR times SV equals CO. Quite simply, it said heart rate times volume of blood ejected with each contraction, that stroke volume, equals cardiac output. I know, trust me, I know. So just remember it as HR times SV equals CO. Now, perfusion is the constant flow of oxygenated blood to tissues. Good perfusion requires the following. A well-functioning heart, an adequate volume of fluid or blood, and blood vessels must be appropriately constricted to match the volume of blood available. This is what good perfusion is. And when we don't have good perfusion, this is when we begin to have medical problems, cardiovascular medical problems, as well as your patient slipping into shock. Okay, so this covers the anatomy and physiology portion of this lecture. Now we're gonna be jumping into the pathophysiology of cardiovascular emergencies. Chest pain usually stems from ischemia, which is decreased blood flow. Ischemic heart disease involves a decreased blood flow to one or more portions of the heart. If blood flow is not restored, the tissue dies. Now, one thing that can cause ischemia is arteriosclerosis. Arteriosclerosis is a buildup of calcium and cholesterol in the arteries. This buildup can cause occlusions of the arteries. Now, over time and with age, basically the fatty material just accumulates on the inside of our arteries and thus leads to arteriosclerosis, as well as our age also causes hardening of the arteries over time. Arteriosclerosis could also lead to the inner wall of the artery becoming rough and brittle. If a brittle plaque develops a crack for unknown reasons, the ragged edge of the crack activates the blood clotting system of the body, resulting in a blood clot that will partially or completely block the lumen of the artery. Let's talk a little about a thromboembolism. A thromboembolism is a blood clot that floats through the blood vessels. If it reaches an area too narrow for it to pass, it stops and blocks blood flow at that point. Tissues downstream from the blood clot will suffer from hypoxia. If too much time passes before blood flow is resumed, the tissue will die. This sequence of events is known as acute myocardial infarction, AMI, a classic heart attack. The death of heart muscle can severely diminish the heart's ability to pump resulting in a thing known as cardiac arrest. In the United States, coronary artery disease is the number one cause of death for men and women. The peak incidence of heart disease is between 45 and 64 years of age, but it can strike in individuals ranging from their teens to their 90s. Now, in regards to risk factors, there's two types of risk factors controllable risk factors and uncontrollable risk factors. Let's first discuss controllable risk factors. Controllable risk factors are cigarette smoking, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high blood glucose levels, usually that means that the patient has already been diagnosed with diabetes, lack of exercise, and obesity. Uncontrollable risk factors are older age, family history, arteriosclerotic coronary artery disease, race, ethnicity, and being a male. Yes, males are more susceptible to a heart attack than females. I didn't write this, it's actually in the literature. Ladies and gentlemen, on these longer lectures, I'm gonna start including a 
break in the lecture so you know that you can actually take a pause and do what you need to do. So this would be a good time before we move on to the next part of the lecture. All right, welcome back. We're going to now talk about acute coronary syndrome, otherwise known as ACS. ACS is caused by myocardial ischemia, which can lead to angina pectoris or an acute myocardial infarction, AMI. Let's first talk about angina pectoris. Angina pectoris occurs when the heart's need for oxygen exceeds the available supply, usually during physical or emotional stress. It can result from a spasm of the artery, but is most often a symptom of arteriosclerotic coronary artery disease. It can be triggered by a large mill or sudden fear. When increased oxygen demand goes away, the pain typically goes away. So when we do have that chest pain patient, this means that we stop the patient from what we're doing to get them to relax and calm down. If the patient is having an episode of angina pectoris, this could help alleviate that pain. Angina pain is commonly described as crushing, squeezing, or like somebody is standing on the patient's chest. It's usually felt in the mid portion of the chest under the sternum. It can radiate to the jaw, arms, frequently the left arm, mid-back, epigastrum, the upper middle region of the abdomen. The pain will usually last three to eight minutes, but rarely longer than 15 minutes. It can also have some associated signs and symptoms such as shortness of breath, nausea, or sweating. Now the pain will usually disappear promptly with rest, supplemental oxygen, and the administration of nitroglycerin. Although angina does not usually lead to death or permanent heart damage, it is a warning sign that should be taken seriously. Unstable angina occurs in response to fewer stimuli than ordinarily required to produce regular angina. Stable angina responds to rest and nitroglycerin. Patients experiencing chest pain or discomfort should always be treated as if they are having an AMI. With that, let's now switch gears and actually talk about an AMI. The pain of an AMI signals the actual death of cells in the area of the heart where blood flow is obstructed. Once dead, the cells cannot be revived. They will turn to scar tissue and become a burden to the beating heart. About 30 minutes after blood flow is cut off, some heart muscles begin to die. After about two hours, as many as half of the cells in the area may be dead. After four to six hours, more than 90% of the cells will be dead. Opening the coronary artery will eat with either clot busting, thrombolytic drugs, or angioplasty, mechanical clearing of the artery, can prevent permanent damage if it is done within the first few hours after the onset of symptoms. This is why immediate transport is crucial. If someone asks you, what is the area of the heart that is more likely to suffer from an AMI? Well, it's usually the left ventricle. Now, there are some particular signs and symptoms of an AMI, and those include sudden weakness, nausea or sweating, chest pain, discomfort or pressure. The pain can radiate to the lower jaw, arm, back, abdomen, or the patient could tell you that they have neck pain. The irregular heartbeat could lead to a syncopal episode, and the patient could have some associated signs and symptoms of shortness of breath, acute nausea, vomiting, and unfortunately, they could be spitting up pink frothy sputum, as well as having a sudden collapse, which would be sudden death. The pain of an AMI differs from the pain of angina in three ways. First, it may or may not be caused by exertion and can occur at any time, sometimes when a person is sitting quietly or even sleeping. It does not resolve in a few minutes, rather it can last between 30 minutes and several hours. Last, it may or may not be relieved by rest or nitroglycerin. Not all patients who are having an AMI experience pain or recognize it when it occurs. When called to the scene where the chief complaint is chest pain, complete a thorough assessment no matter what the patient says. Physical findings of an AMI and cardiac compromise include the following. 
under the category of general appearance, your patient could present with fear, nausea, poor circulation, pale or ashen gray skin, and possibly cyanotic skin. Under the category of pulse, the patient's heart rate could become faster due to the pain, but it can also be irregular and possibly bradycardic if there's already been damage to the inferior area of the heart. Now under the category of blood pressure, the blood pressure could be decreased, normal, or possibly elevated. Under the category of respirations, respirations could be normal or rapid, as well as possibly labored. Last, mental status, the patient could be having expressed feelings of impending doom. Remember that, impending doom. There are three serious consequences of AMI. The first being sudden death resulting from cardiac arrest. The second is cardiogenic shock. And the last is congestive heart failure, aka CHF. Okay, that's what you need to know for angina and AMI. We're now going to move to dysrhythmias. And we're going to be talking about premature ventricular contractions, otherwise known as PVCs, tachycardia, bradycardia, ventricular tachycardia, and ventricular fibrillation. So write those down and let's get ready. Now remember, a dysrhythmia describes an abnormality of the heart rhythm. Now I'm talking about the first one, a PVC. A PVC are basically extra beats in a damaged ventricle, hence the reason ventricle in the PVC description. So you just need to remember that. Now they can be harmless and are common in healthy as well as sick people. Now in regards to tachycardia, tachycardia describes the heart at a heart rate above 100 beats per minute, as opposed to bradycardia, which consists of any heartbeat below 60 beats a minute. So in your definitions and for your own test taking, bradycardia is a heartbeat below 60, tachycardia is a heart rate above 100. Now there's a new condition, I should say not a new condition, there is a condition called ventricular tachycardia. This describes a rapid heartbeat and usually the rate is between 150 to 200 beats per minute. This may eventually deteriorate from VTAC, ventricular tachycardia, to ventricular fibrillation, VFib. Now what is ventricular fibrillation? Well, the best way to describe this is the heart is essentially having a seizure inside of the chest and there is no rhythm to it whatsoever. It's disorganized electrical activity and basically the ventricles are just sitting there quivering and no blood is flowing. That is what V-fib is. The definitive treatment for a patient in V-fib is the use and deployment of an AED or manual defibrillation. Now defibrillation is the process of shocking the heart with a specialized electrical current to restore normal cardiac rhythms. It can save lives if delivered within the first few minutes of sudden death. If a defibrillator is not readily available, the EMT or rescuer should initiate CPR immediately until the defibrillator arrives. Once the defibrillator arrives, that rescuer should deploy the AED while the first rescuer continues CPR. Chances of survival diminish approximately 10% each minute until defibrillation is accomplished. So that is huge, ladies and gentlemen. Now there could be another dysrhythmia that the patient presents that would be the reason why they're in cardiac arrest, and that is known as asystole, aka a flat line. Asystole is the complete absence of all electrical activity in the heart. It reflects a long period of ischemia, and nearly all patients with asystole will die. The best way to think about this is kind of like the matrix. We're one big battery, and eventually that battery will die. Well, that's what happens in the heart. The heart no longer has any electricity and thus we go into that flat line. All right, 
Let's now shift gears and talk a little bit about cardiogenic shock. Cardiogenic shock occurs when body tissues do not get enough oxygen, causing body organs to malfunction. The cause is usually a heart attack, and what happens is the heart lacks the power to force enough blood through the circulatory system. It is most common in an AMI infecting the inferior and posterior regions of the left ventricle. This is why it is important to recognize the early stages of shock. All right, that's all you need to know with cardiogenic shock. Let's now talk about congestive heart failure, aka CHF. Congestive heart failure, CHF, often occurs within the first few days after a myocardial infarction. CHF develops when increased heart rate and enlargement of the left ventricle no longer make up for decreased heart function due to the increased heart valves or chronic hypertension. It is called congestive because lungs become congested with fluid, pulmonary edemia, once the heart fails to pump effectively. So what's going on? Basically, the lungs begin to fill up with fluid because the ventricle is unable to pump efficiently and the blood has nowhere to go but to remain in the lungs. CHF can occur suddenly, but it can also be chronic and happen slowly over a few months. If the acute onset of CHF exists, severe pulmonary edemia is accompanied by pink frothy sputum and severe dyspnea. Now, in the chronic side of this, fluid may collect in other parts of the body which are known as dependent edemia. And you may see this dependent edemia in the feet and legs. And if the patient is bed confined, they can present with sacral edemia. We're now going to talk about a hypertensive emergency. A hypertensive emergency involves any systolic blood pressure greater than 180 or a rapid increase in the systolic pressure. Common symptoms include a sudden severe headache, a strong belting pulse, and ringing in the ears. Once again, common symptoms can include a sudden severe headache, strong bounding pulse, and ringing in the ears. Additionally, the patient could also tell you that they're having nausea and vomiting, dizziness, their skin signs could be warm and dry, they may present with a nosebleed, your patient may also have an altered mental status, and have sudden pulmonary edemia. If this condition goes untreated, this hypertensive emergency can lead to a stroke or a dissecting aortic aneurysm. You should consider ALS assistance immediately and transport these patients quickly and safely. Since we're now on the topic of a aortic aneurysm, let's talk about this emergency. And an aortic aneurysm describes a weakness in the wall of the aorta. It is very susceptible to rupture. If it ruptures, blood loss will cause the patient to die almost immediately. A dissecting aneurysm occurs when inner layers of the aorta become separated, allowing blood to flow at high pressure between the layers. The primary cause is usually uncontrolled hypertension. The associated signs and symptoms would be a very sudden onset of chest pain, that pain may be described as tearing, and if the patient says that, you should become very, very scared. When you feel that you have this patient, during your assessment, you should take a blood pressure in both arms. That blood pressure may be different from arm to arm, as well as you need to assess the pulses in the lower extremities. That finding, you may see that the pulses are diminished. If this is the case, you should transport the patient quickly, safely, and gently. Okay, we have now concluded the pathophysiology of this lecture, and we're going to be moving to the specific patient assessment as it relates to cardiac emergencies. We will go through our normal categories of scene survey, primary assessment, secondary assessment, and reassessment to ensure that you have the subcategories of the necessary information when you're doing the cardiac emergency assessment. All right, let's first talk about scene size up. 
Scene safety. Ensure that the scene is safe and follow your standard precautions. You should at this point try to determine the nature of the illness utilizing clues from dispatch, the scene, the patient, family members, and any bystander statements. Moving on to the primary assessment, as you form your general impression, try to determine the responsiveness of the patient and if the patient is breathing or not breathing. If the patient is not breathing, begin CPR, starting with chest compressions, and then call for an AED. Let's now move into the ABCs, assessing the patient's airway and breathing. If dizziness or fainting has occurred due to cardiac compromise, consider the possibility of a spinal injury from a fall. Assess breathing to determine whether the ailing heart is receiving adequate oxygen. Shortness of breath with no signs of respiratory distress. Consider the O2 saturation of the patient. If the saturation is less than 95%, administer oxygen at 4 liters via nasal cannula. If the patient does not improve quickly, apply oxygen via a non-rebreather mask at 10 to 15 liters via mask. And obviously, if the patient's not breathing or there is inadequate breathing, such as agonal respirations, apply 100% oxygen utilizing a bag valve mask, BVM. One last thing to consider is if the patient presents with any type of pulmonary edema. At this point in time, you're going to want to utilize positive pressure ventilation with a BVM or continuous positive airway pressure via a CPAP. All right, let's move on to the patient's circulation. As with all of our patients, you're going to be assessing the patient's pulse rate and quality, skin color, moisture, and temperature, as well as cap refill time. With these patients, you should be considering the treatment for cardiogenic shock. And the reason for this is because you could reduce the workload of the heart. Position the patient in a comfortable position. This is usually sitting up and well supported. At this point, based upon your primary assessment, you should be making transport decisions. I always tell my students they should be thinking about the song from the clash, Should I Stay or Should I Go, while they're doing the assessment. Dependent on what you find, and if you're able to stabilize those life threats during the primary assessment, we'll decide if you should stay or if you should go. The remainder of the assessment can be performed in route if time allows. Most patients with chest pain should be transported immediately. Follow your local protocols for determining what receiving facility is the most appropriate. Some patients will just go to the local ER, while some will go to a stemming center. So once again, this depends on local protocols. You need to determine whether to use the lights and siren for each patient, partially based on the estimated transport time. As a general rule, Patients with cardiac problems should be transported in the most gentle, stress-relieving manner possible. All right, we're going to move on to history taking now. Remember, at this phase of your assessment, you're a detective. You're investigating the patient's chief complaint, and that's what we're going to do. So investigate that chief complaint. Because patients experiencing AMI will have a different signs and symptoms, you should consider all complaints of chest pain to be an AMI. So if it's chest pain chest discomfort, shortness of breath, or dizziness, in the back of your mind, you should be thinking AMI. I can tell you that patients definitely do present with different signs and symptoms. For example, sometimes when you're assessing a patient who has chest pain, you'll ask them, does the chest pain get worse or better with anything that you do? In my experience, those patients that are experiencing a true AMI Nothing makes the chest pain better or worse. So if someone says, yes, the pain does increase when I take a deep breath, well, that could be another medical condition such as pleuritic chest pain. But once again, as long as you, the EMT, teach or treats all chest pain as AMI chest pain, you can never do any real harm to your patient as you're going to be doing the best, most treatment for them. Another example is those patients that experience dyspnea. Sometimes that dyspnea could be related to some type of exertion or the patient's position. So does moving them make them any better? As you continue your detective work, don't forget to ascertain if your patient is having any type of nausea, vomiting, fatigue, headache. Do they feel palpitations in their chest? 
Has there been any recent trauma? These are all things that you should be asking your patient to determine what type of chest pain you're looking for. And don't forget about using the acronym sample when you have a responsible, I should say, responsive patient. And let's talk a little bit about sample. Sample reminds us of the questions we should ask. Ask the following questions. Have you ever had a heart attack? Have you ever been told that you have heart problems? Do you have any risk factors for coronary artery disease? In addition, you should ask, what allergies does the patient have? Is the patient taking any medications, prescribed, over-the-counter, home remedies? At this point of your assessment, we can move on to OPQRST for obtaining signs and symptoms as part of the sample history. Now I will say this, I will be having a mini lecture on OPQRST and how to properly use that. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, refer to your own lectures and textbook. All right, now is a great time for us to take that break as after the break, we'll be talking about the secondary assessment. For the secondary assessment, you, the EMT, should be focusing on the cardiac and respiratory systems. On the circulation side, you're going to be assessing the circulation of the patient by their pulse, color of the skin, body temperature, and their blood pressure in both arms. On the respiration side of this, are the patient's lungs clear? Are the breath sounds equal? Do you see any neck vein distended? Is there any tracheal deviation? Or is the trachea inline, or I should say midline, as it's supposed to? These are things that you should need to be assessing and asking yourself. Measure and record the patient's vital signs, pulse, respiration, and as mentioned before, systolic and diastolic blood pressure in both arms. If you have a pulse ox available, then let's go ahead and utilize that. If you're lucky to have continuous blood pressure monitoring, then let's use it. Repeat your vital sign assessment at appropriate intervals and note the time that each set of vital signs is taken and recorded. In patients with chest pain, it is very valuable to have a 12-lead ECG tracing from as early as possible after the onset of chest pain because there could be changes in the patient's rhythm that the ER physician will pick up on. All right, let's now talk about reassessment before we move on to patient care. Repeat the primary assessment by checking to see whether the patient's chief complaint and condition has improved or if he or she is deteriorating. Reassess vital signs at least every five minutes or any time significant changes in the patient's condition occur. Sudden cardiac arrest is always a risk with patients experiencing a cardiovascular emergency. If cardiac arrest occurs, utilize an AED immediately as an AED is the definitive treatment for patients in cardiac arrest. If you don't have an AED readily available, then begin CPR immediately as well. As usual, always reassess any interventions you, the EMT, administer on the patient. Provide transport if not already doing so. When you drop off your patient at the emergency room, ensure that the emergency room staff has all of the information about your assessment as it provides clues into the patient's initial condition and what they are seeing. And then according to your own policy and procedures, complete your documentation and follow any other procedures from your local medical control. And that is it. All right, let's talk a little bit about patient care now. Okay, so one of the first things that you want to ensure is that your patient is in the proper position of comfort. Allow your patients to sit if it's most comfortable. Loosen any tightened or restrictive clothing. And this can be done while you're conducting your primary as well as your secondary assessment. Now, give oxygen if indicated. Continually reassess oxygen saturation and the patient's respiratory status. Use a nasal cannula for patients with mild dyspnea or use a non-rebreather face mask for patients with more serious respiratory difficulty. Assist unconscious patients with breathing as well as those with respiratory distress. This may mean you may have to use a BVM or positive pressure ventilation device according to your local protocols. Now, depending on protocols, 
prepare to administer low-dose aspirin and assist with prescribed nitroglycerin. Let's talk a little bit about aspirin. You should refer back to the pharmacology lecture for all EMT medications, but we will do a little review. Now, the effects of aspirin, they prevent blood clots from forming or getting bigger. The dosage is usually 81 milligram chewable tablets, or I should say that's the size of the tablet, and the recommended dose is 160 milligrams, which is two tablets, to 324 milligrams, which is four tablets. Now, once again, refer to local protocols. And then, in regards to nitroglycerin, before we think about administering nitroglycerin, we have to ask those very important questions. First, make sure the medications are neither expired nor contaminated before administering them to the patient. Make sure the prescription medication is actually prescribed to the patient. And don't forget for your own protection, at this point in time, you should be wearing gloves when you're administering any medication, especially nitroglycerin. Now nitroglycerin, don't forget, comes in three different forms. There's the sublingual pill, the sublingual spray, and then the skin patch that's applied to the chest. Now I wanna go back to those questions. If the patient is able to, we wanna ask the patient how many doses of nitro they had during this episode. Remember, three doses max. Second, we wanna ask them if they have taken any sexually enhanced medications in the last 24 to 48 hours. These are very, very important questions. Now, how does nitroglycerin work? Or I should say the mechanism of action? Well, it relaxes blood vessel walls, increases blood flow and oxygen supply to the heart and decreases the workload of the heart by dilating blood vessels. And that's how nitroglycerin works. Now, there are some side effects to nitroglycerin, which include severe headache, a change in the pulse rate, as well as a change in the blood pressure, and that change is usually a drop in blood pressure. Now, in talking about that change in blood pressure, actually, I want to go back to the contraindications, contraindications of nitroglycerin. Remember, we do not give nitroglycerin when the systolic blood pressure is below 100, if the patient has any type of head injury, or the use of erectile dysfunction drugs within 24 to 48 hours, or the patient has met the maximum prescribed dose, period. That's it, okay? So remember those contraindications. All right, now we're gonna talk a little bit about cardiac monitoring. Now for the most part, most EMTs do not do cardiac monitoring, but it's still part of National Registry. So we're gonna go over the important facts of National Registry just in case you're tested on it in your program or you're prepping for the National Registry test. For an ECG to be reliable and useful, the electrodes must be placed in a consistent position on each patient. Certain basic principles should be followed to achieve the best skin contact and minimize artifact in the signal. Artifact is basically ECD tracing that is the result of interference, and you can definitely see that interference because it does not resemble any type of cardiac rhythm. Now, there are some guiding principles. It may occasionally be necessary to shave body hair from the electoral site. Rub the electoral site briskly with an alcohol swab before application to remove oils and dead tissues from the surface of the skin. Attach the electrodes to the ECG cables before placement. Confirm that the appropriate electrode now attached to the cable is placed at the correct location on the patient's chest or limbs. Once all electrodes are in place, switch on the monitor. Print a sample rhythm strip. If that strip shows any artifact, verify that the electrodes are firmly applied to the skin and the monitor cable is plugged in correctly. And that is really it for cardiac monitoring. Now in this next section, we're gonna talk about heart surgeries and cardiac assisted devices. Once again, National Registry information. Over the last 30 years, hundreds of thousands of open heart operations have been performed to bypass damaged segments of coronary arteries in the heart. In a coronary artery bypass graft, a blood vessel from the chest or leg is sewn directly from the aorta to a coronary artery beyond the point of obstruction. Now I'm going to talk a, about a thing called a 
percutaneous translumial coronary angioplasty. What is that? Well, let's find out together. In this procedure, a tiny balloon is attached to the end of a long, thin tube. The tube is threaded into a narrow coronary artery and inflated. The balloon is then deflated and the tube and balloon are removed. Sometimes a stent is in place inside the artery. So for all intents and purposes, this is just to expand an artery that is narrowed or has been damaged. Patients who have had a bypass procedure may or may not have a long scar on their chest. So remember that, that scar is not always indicative. Treat chest pain in a patient who has had any of these procedures in the same way that you would treat chest pain in a patient who has never had any type of heart surgery. Now I want to talk a little bit about cardiac pacemakers, pacemakers because some patients may have them. Now pacemakers help maintain a regular cardiac rhythm and rate. They are inserted when the electrical system of the heart is so damaged that it cannot function properly. These battery-powered devices deliver an electrical impulse through wires that are in direct contact with the myocardium. The generating unit typically resembles a silver dollar and is usually placed under a heavy muscle or fold of skin in the left upper portion of the chest. EMTs normally do not need to be concerned about problems with pacemakers. When they do not function properly, pacemakers can cause a patient to experience syncope, dizziness, or weakness due to the excessive slow rate. The pulse will ordinarily be less than 60 beats a minute. A patient with a malfunctioning pacemaker should be promptly transported to the emergency department. When an AED is used, the patches should not be placed directly over the pacemaker. Whew, that was a lot about cardiac pacemakers. Now, let's talk about automatic implanted cardiac defibrillators. All right, automatic implantable cardiac defibrillators are sometimes used by patients who have survived cardiac arrest due to ventricular fibrillation. These devices continuously monitor the heart rhythm and deliver shocks as needed. Treat these patients like all other patients having an AMI, including performing CPR and using an AED if the patient goes into cardiac arrest. The electricity from an automatic implantable cardiac defibrillator is so slow, or I should say is so low, that it will have no effect on rescuers. All right, now here's something that may surprise you, but there is actually external defibrillator vests, and we're gonna talk about those in just a sec. External defibrillator vests is a vest with a built-in monitoring electrodes and defibrillation pads, which is worn by the patient under his or her clothing. The vest is attached to a monitor worn on a belt or hung from a shoulder strap. This device uses high energy shocks similar to an AED, so you should avoid contact with the patient if the device warns that it's about to deliver a shock. The vest should remain in place while CPR is being performed unless it interferes with compressions. If it is necessary to remove the vest, simply remove the battery from the monitor and then remove the vest. That is it. Now we're gonna talk about a thing called an LVAD, a left ventricular assist device. These devices are used to enhance the pumping of the left ventricle in patients with severe heart failure or in patients who need a temporary boost due to an MI. They may be pulsating or continuous. The patient or family may be able to tell you more about the device. Unless the device malfunctions, you should not have to deal with it. Contact medical control if there's any doubt on what to do. Transport all LVAD supplies and battery packs with the patient as the local emergency room may not have any supplement of batteries to fit that particular device. Now we're gonna talk about cardiac arrest and some subcategories that the EMT student should know and understand. Cardiac arrest is the complete sensation of cardiac activity, electrical, mechanical, or both. It is indicated in the field by the absence of a carotid pulse. Now, cardiac arrest was only, almost always terminal until the advent of CPR and external defibrillation, and this did not occur until the 1960s. Now talking about defibrillation, we're gonna talk about what the EMT should know about the AED. 
Automatic external defibrillators involve the use of a small computer that analyzes the electrical signals from the heart. It identifies ventricular fibrillation and is extremely accurate. It administers a shock to the heart when needed. Now, AEDs come in different models. All models require some operator interaction, such as applying the pads or just turning the machine on. The operator must push a button to deliver an electrical shock. Many use a computer voice synthesizer to advise the EMT which steps to take. Most of the AEDs are semi-automatic. Now the advantages of AED use include the following. Quick delivery of an electrical shock. Easy to operate. No need for ALS providers to be on scene. And remote adhesive defibrillator pads are safe to use. And due to the fact that these pads are larger than manual paddles means that the electricity transmission is more efficient. Now, there are other considerations when using an AED which include the following. Not all patients in cardiac arrest require an electrical shock. All patients in cardiac arrest should be analyzed with an AED. Some will not have a shockable rhythm. One of those rhythms is asystole, aka flatline. This cardiac rhythm indicates that there is no electrical activity that remains in the heart. Additionally, a pulseless electrical activity usually refers to a state of cardiac arrest that ex exists despite organized central complex. Okay, so what does that mean? That means when you hook this patient up to a monitor, it looks as if they have a cardiac rhythm. However, there is no associated cardiac output. Thus, the AED will not shock this patient. Early defibrillation is an essential intervention for patients experiencing cardiac arrest. Few patients who experience sudden cardiac arrest outside of the hospital survive unless a rapid sequence of events take place. You should refer to the links in the chain of survival as established by the American Heart Association. Now, CPR helps patients in cardiac arrest by prolonging the period during which defibrillation can be effective. Rapid defibrillation has successfully resuscitated many patients in cardiac arrest from ventricular fibrillation. Defibrillation works best if it takes place within the two minutes of the onset of cardiac arrest. Non-traditional first responders are now being trained to use AEDs and you probably have seen AEDs mounted in airplanes, hotels, and restaurants. And that's indicative of lay people now being trained to use AEDs. Now I have gone back to add the chain of survival and that includes early recognition and activation of EMS, immediate bystander CPR, rapid defibrillation, basic and advanced EMS, and ALS and post-arrest care, which brings us to the final step in the chain of survival, post-arrest care. Now this next part may seem a little confusing and I'm just going to read it as we teach it and then you can refer to your own local lectures and reading. Now, we gotta have continual ventilation at less than 12 breaths a minute to achieve an ETCO2 of 35 to 4 millimeters Hg. We have to maintain oxygen saturation between 94 to 99% and ensure the blood pressure is above 90. Maintain glucose levels if the patient is hypoglycemic. Now, post-arrest care also includes cardiopulmonary and neurological support at the hospital as well as other advanced assessment techniques and interventions to assist the patient in full recovery. When integrating the AED and CPR into patient care, keep the following in mind. It is important to work the AED and CPR in sequence. Do not touch the patient while the AED is analyzing the heart rhythm and delivering shocks. CPR must stop while the AED is performing its job. All right, now we're gonna talk a little bit about AED maintenance and why it is important. First, become familiar with the maintenance procedures required for the brand of AED your service uses. 
You should read the operator's manual as well as understand the common errors in using certain AEDs. Usually the errors come from operator error. Make sure that the battery is properly maintained. Check your equipment, including your AED, daily at the beginning of each shift. Ask the manufacturer for a checklist of items that should be checked daily, weekly, or less often. Report any AED failure that occurs while caring for a patient to the manufacturer and to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Be sure to follow the appropriate EMS procedures for notifying these organizations. Medical direction should or approve the written protocol that you will follow in the care for patients in cardiac arrest. The EMT team and your service medical director or qualifying improvement officer should review each incident in which the AED is used. Quality improvement involves both the individual using AEDs and the responsible EMS systems managers. Reviews should focus on speed of defibrillation, i.e. the time from the call to the shock. Shock should be delivered within one minute of the call. Mandatory continuing education with skill competency review is generally required for EMS providers. Woo, that sounds like a lot, right? All right, now we're going to enter this last phase of our lecture, and that's going to be the emergency medical care for cardiac arrest patients. This is probably going to be one of your longest lectures that you have. So with that, this is the perfect place for us to take our last and final break. Okay, welcome back. Emergency medical care for cardiac arrest. When preparing to use the AED, it is the EMT's job to make sure that the electricity from the AED injures no one. Do not defibrillate patients in pooled water. Electricity will diffuse through the pooled water. Yet, you can defibrillate patients who are soaking wet, but just ensure that you dry their chest. And as a matter of fact, you're going to dry their chest anyways because the defib pads will not stick to a wet chest. Do not defibrillate patients who are touching metal that others are touching. Carefully remove any nitroglycerin patches from a patient's chest and wipe the area with a dry towel before defibrillation to prevent ignition of the patch. It is often helpful to shave a hairy patient's chest before pad placement to increase conductivity. Determine the patient's NOI or NOI and perform any spinal immobilization for trauma patients during the primary assessment. Dependent on the system that you work in, ensure that ALS is en route unless you're that ALS and then prepare the patient for prompt transport and once again utilize a team approach when dealing with cardiac arrest. Okay, let's talk a little bit about if you witness the patient going into cardiac arrest. If you witness a patient going into cardiac arrest, begin CPR immediately with chest compressions. As soon as the AED is available, apply the AED and follow the prompts from the AED. Of course, follow your local protocols for patient care during the use of an AED. After the AED protocol is complete, one of the following is likely to occur. Pulse is regained, no pulse, and the AED indicates that no shock is advised, or no pulse, and the AED indicates that a shock is advised. If ALS is responding to the scene, stay where you are and continue the sequence of shocks and CPR. If ALS is not responding to the scene and protocols agree, begin transport when one of the following occurs. A, the patient regains a pulse, or six to nine shocks are delivered, or the machine gives three consecutive messages separ separated by two minutes of CPR that no shock is advised. And once again, refer to your local protocols. Now we're gonna talk a little bit about cardiac arrest during transport. If you are transporting to the hospital and your patient becomes unconscious and then becomes pulseless, stop the vehicle. Begin CPR if an AED is not immediately ready. Call for ALS or other available resources based on circumstances and local protocols. Analyze the rhythm. Deliver one shock if indicated and immediately resume CPR. Continue resuscitation according to your local protocols. Now, 
If you're en route with a conscious adult patient who is having chest pain and becomes unconscious, check for a pulse, stop the vehicle, begin CPR if the AED is not immediately ready, analyze the rhythm, deliver one shock if indicated, and immediately resume CPR. Begin compressions and continue resuscitation according to your local protocol, including transporting the patient. Now let's talk about that ALS and coordinating with ALS personnel according to your local protocols. If you have an AED available, do not wait for paramedics to arrive. Notify ALS personnel as soon as possible after you recognize a cardiac arrest. Never delay defibrillation. When paramedics arrive, inform them of your actions to the point where you're at and then interact with them according to your local protocols. That is it for your ALS or coordinating with ALS personnel. Now let's last discuss management of return of spontaneous circulation. What happens if all of our efforts are positive and our patient regains their pulse? First, monitor for spontaneous respirations. Provide oxygen via BVM at 10 to 12 breaths a minute Maintain an oxygen saturation between 95 to 99%. Assess the patient's blood pressure and see if the patient can follow simple commands. If ALS is not on scene or en route, immediately begin transport to the closest appropriate hospital depending on local protocols. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it with this lecture. Remember, you can listen to these podcasts ad-free by subscribing and becoming a member either through this podcast or by joining our Patreon channel. Membership grants exclusive learning content such as members' exclusive podcasts, quizzes, tests, and study guides. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the EMT Tutor. Again, thanks for listening and happy EMTing.